three parables that Jesus uh, gave to his disciples. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all that he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore. Then they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets but threw the bad away. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things, Jesus asked. Yes, they replied. He said to them, Therefore, every teacher of the law who has become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. When Jesus had finished these parables, he moved on from there. Coming to his hometown, he began teaching the people in their synagogue, and they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? Aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offence at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honour except in his own town and in his own home. And he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. Thanks, Robin. And good morning once again. Uh, it's lovely to be with you today. If uh, you missed my name when we came in, my name is Carl. I'm the pastor of the church here. As Robert mentioned, we've just finished a series looking at to Timothy. If you missed any of the talks, they're available online. You can download them from our website. The details on how to find that are on the leaflet when you came in. Over the next six weeks, we're going to be looking at some of the middle chapters of Matthew's Gospel. They're great chapters. Uh, You'll know many of the stories in these chapters quite well. We're going to be reading of Jesus feeding the 5,000, of Jesus walking on the water. We'll read the story of Jesus being transfigured. These chapters are made up of parables and miracles and many extraordinary events. And a lot of the teaching in these chapters comes through the words of Jesus himself speaking. This is a great section of the Bible. But it's not always easy reading in this section of the Bible. A couple of weeks ago, when I started to get ready to preach again from Matthew's Gospel, I was in my mind really looking forward to a few easy sermons, so to speak. I thought there'd be lots of good accounts of Jesus providing bread to the crowds and doing great things like walking on the water. Easy sermons to write, easy sermons to preach. And then I actually got down to the work of doing the writing. And I opened up the Bible and read these words that Robin read to us earlier. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And I wanted to shut Matthew's Gospel and find another book to preach from. 
Maybe I thought I could squeeze out another sermon from 2 Timothy. After all, we never did speak about Paul's longing to be reunited with his missing coat. If you missed it, if you read the end of 2 Timothy, you'll see that there. I think no sane preacher would enjoy the reality of preaching on the topic of judgment. So I thought about preaching another passage or just shortening it. Perhaps I could just preach from verses 44 to 46 today. But 2 Timothy was knocking round in my mind. Remember Paul's words to his dear son Timothy. Robin just read them to us before. All scripture is God-breathed. All scripture is useful for teaching, correcting and rebuking. And I felt the rebuke myself. I'd love to only preach from verses 44 to 46 today, but if I do that, it'll strip you and I of something that we need to hear and we need to chew over and think about. If we skip the parable of the net, we skip the judgment of God, and in doing so, we strip away the justice of God. If we skip the justice of God, then we rob the kingdom of a great treasure, don't we? We rob the gospel of the certainty that God will bring justice and with it reconciliation and redemption and ultimately forgiveness. The kingdom of heaven is a kingdom in which all things will be put right by a God who is holy and perfectly just. That's a long way of saying, if you feel a little bit uncomfortable by these words that we've read today, you're not alone. These are difficult words to read. But I want you to know they're also priceless and valuable words. I'm convinced they're God-breathed words. They're true and real, and I think we need to hear them today. So what are we going to look at today? Well, really three things. If you've got your leaflet, you'll see uh, those three points listed there. We're going to look firstly at the value or the worth of the kingdom of heaven. And we'll see that in the first two parables. They're great parables. We saw one of those in our kids' talk today. The second thing is I want you to see that part of the value in the kingdom of God is that we are able to make a choice between life and death. Choice between life and death. And the third thing we're going to see is kind of like a worked example of how not to respond to the kingdom of God. Because chapter 13 asks the question, what is the kingdom of God like? The answer in chapter 13 is, is it priceless, worthless, so worth, worth everything that we have? Priceless and worth everything we have. But the big question really, I think, that comes out of this passage is not so much how much is the kingdom worth, but how are you going to respond to the kingdom? How are you going to respond to the message of the gospel? The gospel demands a response. How are you going to respond? Well, let's get into the text. I want you to firstly see the great worth of the kingdom. And you'll find that in uh, verse 44 of chapter 13. I think it's on page 1523 of your Bibles. Page 1523. Let me read from verse 44. It says this, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought the field. I wonder if you've ever found buried treasure. Sadly, I think most of the buried treasure in the world has now probably been found. But in times gone by when there weren't banks, 
if he had a stash of money or something valuable, the safest thing to do with that was to find an isolated field and then when no one was watching, dig a deep hole and bury your treasure. Of course, if you happen to get hit by a runaway chariot on the way home from doing that burying task, your treasure was lost, it was gone. No one would know where you put it. It would be gone forever. Never to see the light of day unless some farmer happened upon it when they're ploughing the field. Dug it up. Finding buried treasure is kind of like the stuff of dreams, isn't it? It's like winning the lottery without the stigma of gambling. Mary and John know this all too well. Mary and John, that's not their actual names, but they were one day out walking their dog on a rural Californian property. This is a true story, apparently. Mary and John, out on their rural Californian property, walking their dog. And as they're doing this, they stumble across eight partly buried tins. I've got a photo of one of the tins on the screen behind me. These eight tins that they found had in them 1,400 US minted gold coins. The coins dated from 1847 to 1894. In the back paddock of their farm, they had discovered buried treasure. It's not quite as we might have expected. There was no ornate wooden chest with an old lock on it. Rather, the money was buried in what looks like rusting old Milo tins. But there it is. And listen to this. The coins have an estimated value of, wait for it, 10 million US dollars. I wonder if you've ever stumbled across buried treasure. I've never found buried treasure, but I have stumbled across a treasure chest. I have it here, in fact, and I'm going to bring it up onto the stage here so you can see it. One morning I was driving to my sister's house to take one of my kids there. It's heavy. There we go. I was driving, taking one of my kids to my sister's house. And as I drove along, I saw this chest on the side of the road. It looked like it was out for hard rubbish collection. On the way back home from dropping my, uh, one of my kids off at my sister's house, I stopped the car and got out to have a look. The chest looked interesting. Now, you might not be a hard rubbish collector, but I spent too many years as a university student not to be interested in hard rubbish collections. There's always an ethical dilemma that goes with them, though, isn't it? Do you ask or do you just take? I went for the ask approach, so I poked my head in through the gate of this house, and there was someone there mowing the lawns, and I said to them, is that chest out for hard rubbish? Can I have it? Yes, they said. I could have it. I thought I'd found treasure. And in a sense, hard rubbish is the modern-day equivalent of stumbling across buried treasure, isn't it? Jesus tells us in this parable that the kingdom of heaven is like buried treasure. In other words, it's valuable, worth everything you have. What is the kingdom of heaven? Well, simply put, it's the uncontested rule and reign of Jesus. It's seen in the Gospels, breaking through with Jesus, healing and doing miracles. But it's to be fully realized in the age to come. And in these parables, we see the kingdom of heaven and how valuable it is. 
When the finder of the treasure found it, he sold all he had in order to gain that treasure. The parable shows us two things, doesn't it? Firstly, it shows us the great value in the kingdom of heaven. It's worth selling everything you have in order to obtain it. And secondly, we see the hidden nature of the kingdom. Not everyone will see it. Not all will stumble across it. Indeed, in this parable, the finder wasn't even looking for the treasure. They just came upon it. For some of us, that might be our experience with the kingdom of heaven. We might have not been looking for Jesus and just stumbled across him. And if you do stumble across the kingdom of heaven, if you stumble across Jesus, how do you respond? Matthew leads us, doesn't he, towards the response he wants us to think of. You respond in the same way as if you found a treasure chest. You'd give up everything you had in order to obtain it. One day, has the gospel cost you anything? Has the kingdom of heaven been pricey for you? The second parable is very similar to the first, isn't it? It reinforces the point of the great worth of the kingdom of heaven. But there's a subtle difference. I wonder if you noticed it when Robin read it to us. Here the merchant is seeking the kingdom. Let me read the parable again. It says, The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. So the merchant was always on the lookout for a fine pearl. And having found that one pearl, the one that beats all the others, he's willing to sell everything he has to get hold of the pearl of great value. I wonder if you're searching for something of great value today. Are you searching for Jesus? Are you searching for the gospel? Are you searching for meaning? Here we see it's worth the cost of doing that. I wonder if you're searching. The explorers who worked for the company, the Sea Search Armada, were searching for and eventually found a treasure of great worth. In fact, it was a treasure so valuable it was worth them giving up everything in order to recover it. The Sea Search Armada found the wreck of the San Jose. I've told some of you about the wreck of the San Jose before, but if you don't know, the San Jose was a Spanish galleon. It sank about 300 years ago, and on board were 11 million gold coins, each weighing 27 grams. There's a photo of one of the gold coins, the front and back on the screen behind me. These coins are 97% pure gold. Today, those 11 million coins are worth more than eleven and a half billion dollars and on the San Jose there was also emeralds and silver sea search Amada found a treasure that is today worth 17 billion billion dollars you give up a fair bit wouldn't you to find that treasure and make it your own here's the question that these parables ask How would you respond if you found a treasure of great worth? How would you respond if you just stumbled across it? How would you respond if you were searching for it intently? And having seen the kingdom of heaven in the pages of Matthew's gospel so far, how will you respond? Will you put your trust in the king of the kingdom? Will you follow this man, Jesus, who, remember in the chapters before, 
gave sight to the blind, helped the lame to walk, cleansed those with leprosy, allowed the deaf to hear, raised the dead and proclaimed the good news to the poor. That's what the king of the kingdom is like. The gospel demands a response. These parables, they're not designed to answer the ethical implications of finding a buried treasure in your neighbor's field. They are designed to press on this question. How will you respond to the kingdom of God? Well, so far, so good. Then we get to verse 47 and the parable of the net. It's a different sort of parable, isn't it? I could speak all day, I think, on the first two parables, but so much of me wants to skirt around the parable of the net. I don't think there's really many Bible teachers who like talking on this sort of parable. It's a sobering parable. It's hard. It's also important. We need to read these words and chew over them. Remember, these are not my words. In fact, they're not even Matthew's words. This is Jesus speaking here. Let me read the parable starting at verse 47. It says this, Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore Then they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but threw the bad away. Now, at this point in the story, Jesus' audience is probably more familiar with fishing techniques than we are today. I understand that back then, a net was typically tied between two boats, or maybe between one boat and a person on the shore, and the net was pulled through the water, and it trapped and caught everything, every fish, in its path. During community group this week, someone pointed out to me that sustainable fishing can't have been a big thing back in Jesus' day. I think they're probably right. You can be sure that back in those days, fish were not sold or marketed as being line caught, were they? And using a fishing line, well, it, it wouldn't have worked for this parable either. Indeed, the whole point of this parable is the net captures everything in its path. The fish that are good and worth eating, and those that are not, and are hence discarded. And what's on view here is a separation, or a division, or a sorting. It's not a sorting that happens today, but rather a sorting that happens on the last day. Let me read on in verse 49. It says, this is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus is speaking here about the end of the age and the sorting and the dividing that will happen on the day of judgment. It makes for hard reading, doesn't it? It's hard because think of the implications of this for us. Think of those who we know and those that we love who don't yet know Jesus. How painful is this passage? And we read it with that in mind. But that's the right heart to have, isn't it? To read a parable like this, thinking that way. Remember Jesus' heart? What he's like? He looks on the crowds and has compassion on them. And because he has compassion, he sends his disciples out to preach about the kingdom of God. 
That's Jesus' heart. A concern for those who don't yet know Jesus is God's concern. I want to show you this clearly. I want to read to you from 2 Peter chapter 3. I've got the words on the screen so you don't need to flick in your Bible there. The context is the day of the Lord. The context is judgment. Peter says this. He says, Do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. If you, like me, find these words in Matthew hard, you're not alone. If you're concerned for those who don't yet know Jesus, your heart is like God's heart at this point. We should be concerned for those who don't know Jesus yet. (coughs) Having said all that, I also want us to take a little bit of time to see that God is a God of justice. We want our God, don't we, to right the wrongs and deal with the injustice and the hurt and the pain in this world. That's certainly the case for me anyway. At least at one level, I want God to be a God who judges because I want him to be a God of justice. In comparison to the first two parables that we've looked at, which are so fun and so positive, I mean, what could be better than finding treasure? This parable is somber. It's like that because it's a warning. But it also asks a very similar question to the first two parables. How will you respond to the kingdom of heaven? How will you respond to the gospel? It's a big stakes question. This parable shows us that. It's a matter of life and death, separation of the wicked and the righteous. What are you going to be? The Bible teaches us that each one of us is hopelessly lost without Jesus. Each one of us is unable to stand in the presence of a holy and a just God. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. I think if we're honest, we all know that. We all know we've messed up things, all left undone what ought to have been done. We pray that nearly every week here. We can all look back and think about times that we should have behaved differently or been different or done more or said less or been more generous. The Bible tells us that we all, every one of us, deserve condemnation. And by that account, if we read ourselves into this parable, we are all bad fish. You, me, all of us. And so perhaps it's part of the treasure, the immense worth of the kingdom of heaven, that because of the gospel, because of the work of Jesus, those who trust in him are counted or reckoned in a way, as good fish, as righteous. Not because of anything we've done, but because our Saviour Jesus has made us that way. We're seen as righteous because of him. Because of him and his righteousness, we can live a right life. I don't think that's any clearer anywhere in the whole Bible than in Romans chapter 8, where the Apostle Paul says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This passage is asking us, 
How will you respond to the kingdom of heaven? How will you respond to the gospel? The truth is we all deserve condemnation, but because of the grace of the gospel, we might be seen as righteous, counted as the good fish. It's that reality coupled with the seriousness of this parable that was behind the impetus for me to switch from engineering into a ministry job. Can you see the great offer that this parable is holding out for us? This is what lies behind our endeavour to be a missional church, to reach the people of Unley. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When the day of judgment comes, we're all going to be bad fish unless we are in Christ Jesus. That's what makes the gospel such good news. The gospel is all about how we become in Christ Jesus. How will you respond to the gospel? In the last section of this chapter, I think that question of how we respond is asked again, and this time it's sort of done in a worked out kind of example. Jesus goes home, um, and in his hometown we see, well, we kind of see how not to respond to the kingdom of God. How not to respond to the king. In a way, though, you can't really blame them, is it? There's something familiar about being in families that cuts down those who have risen up. Some of you will know Meredith's father. He comes here uh, to church sometimes. Meredith's dad was an airline captain for Korean airlines. In Korea, especially when he was in uniform or at work, Meredith's dad was revered as a captain. I remember travelling with him once and it felt like the crew were almost worshipping him. Everything was, yes, captain, of course, captain, as you wish, captain. It wouldn't have surprised me to see some of the crew in the corner peeling grapes for the captain's pleasure. Such was the way they talked about him. And then he'd come home. Do you think that happened at home in Melbourne? Of course not. At home he was dad, very much loved, but there was no yes captain, no sure captain, no peeling of grapes. How did those in Jesus' hometown respond to the kingdom of heaven? Well, it seems to me that they responded with disbelief. They knew Jesus really only as an ordinary man, not as the king of the kingdom. And look at the result. He didn't do many miracles because of their lack of faith. What a loss for his hometown. So they didn't respond to the king of the kingdom. They didn't magnify his name. They didn't worship him. They didn't honour and revere him. Jesus is the king of the kingdom. A kingdom of great worth, like the treasure of the San Jose. A kingdom worth giving up everything you have. Indeed, if you reject the kingdom... It will cost you everything you have. Today, I want to encourage us as a church to respond to Jesus, to worship him, to honour him and to put our trust and our hope in him. I want us to do that knowing that our God is a God of justice, a God who cares for us and for our families and for our friends. Our God is a good God. He's a God who's worthy of our praise. Today we're going to do that in just a moment. I'm going to pray a prayer of praise now and then we're going to sing together, praising our God, offering our lives to him. Let me pray. Father God, you are worthy of our praise. We thank you for your majesty. We thank you for your rule and for your reign. We praise you for Jesus, 
our King, risen and exalted. We honour you. We thank you that in him there is no condemnation. Father, we pray for those who don't yet know Jesus as the King of the Kingdom. Please work in their lives. Reveal yourself to them. We know you're a God who doesn't want anyone to perish. Father, we humbly ask that you would use us and this church to be a vehicle of bringing your love and your grace and your treasure to this part of Adelaide and further afield as well. Amen. I've got one question today. Thank you for sending in the question. Um, The question uh, says, you've talked about the human response of what we should do and how we respond. What is the role of the Spirit in our response? A great question. What is the role of the Spirit uh, as we hear the gospel, as we respond to Jesus? In John uh, 14, Jesus tells us that if you love me and keep my commands, I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. I love the way the Spirit is called an advocate. I love that the Spirit is a Spirit of truth. How do we apply these things? Well, I think um, the Spirit will help us to understand the words that are written for us, uh, that God has given us to understand. The Spirit will transform us in our minds and help us to see the truth of the words. Uh, The Spirit is very active, involved, I think, in us coming to understand who God is and how he works in us. I think it's kind of in a combination of the Spirit working through truth and helping us to interpret the words uh, that we see some of that. The Spirit is also described as an advocate, a help. How great a picture is that, that we have uh, an advocate on our behalf in the Spirit of God. I hope that helps answer that question a little bit. Thanks, Rob.